We have an internal saying, if all we do is build a great hospital, we will have failed because we really believe this should be a catalyst to improve that neighborhood with the neighborhood and actually see them get healthier. Welcome to Off the Record, a podcast featuring leaders on IBJ Media's Indiana 250 list. I'm Nate Feltman, CEO of IBJ Media, which publishes the Indiana 250, a list of the most influential business people in the state. Today, I'm joined by Dennis Murphy, the president and CEO of the largest health system in our state, Indiana University Health. Dennis joined IU Health in 2013 as chief operating officer, overseeing the operation of IU Health entities throughout Indiana. He became president of IU Health in 2015 and took over as CEO in May of 2016. Of course, Dennis wasn't a newcomer to healthcare administration when he showed up at IU Health. He had a wealth of experience at some of the best known health systems in the country, spending 10 years at John Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore before moving to his hometown of Chicago, where he was vice president of ambulatory services and financial planning for University of Chicago hospitals. Immediately before joining IU Health and moving his family to Westfield, he was COO and executive vice president at Northwestern Memorial Healthcare in Chicago. True to his Irish roots, Dennis graduated from the University of Notre Dame. Then he moved on to Duke University and earned a master's in healthcare administration. At IU Health, he leads a system with more than 36,000 employees and is responsible for one of the largest construction projects in the city's history. IU Health's new $4 billion hospital complex currently under construction on the north edge of downtown. He also serves on, or has served on, the boards of the Indy Chamber, the Indiana Hospital Association, the IU Health Foundation, the Central Indiana Corporate Partnership, the National Bank of Indianapolis, and the Indiana Health Information Exchange. And he's chaired the American Hospital Association's Transparency Task Force since 2019. Given his work in our city and state, it's no surprise Dennis has twice been named to IBJ's list of the 250 most influential Hoosiers. But we've got so much more to talk about, including his early idea of becoming a priest, the summers he spent on his family's farm in Ireland, his history with Irish dance, and some crazy experiences driving on roundabouts in Ireland. Dennis, welcome to Off the Record Podcast. I'm so glad to have you as my guest. Thanks so much, Nate. I'm really happy to be here with you today. So, Dennis, I hear you've won some Irish dancing trophies as a kid, but maybe you weren't so good as an adult driving around Irish roundabouts. Tell us more about uh, roundabouts and Irish dancing. I'm the son of two immigrants. My parents were both farmers uh, in the western part of Ireland, Mayo and Kerry. And so that was a huge part of the culture I grew up in. And my sister was a really good Irish dancer and Probably back in that day, parents didn't take each one of your kids someplace else. So my sister went dancing. That meant my brother and I went dancing. Didn't have a choice and really enjoyed it. I always said it made me a better basketball player. I had good footwork, but was one of those things that made me feel a bigger part of my culture. My sister ended up going on to be this really remarkable Irish dancer, danced in Ireland and other places. My brother and I were kind of window decorations, but those trophies we got, I think, are like Little League consolation trophies just showing up. uh, You ended up winning something. That's cool. So, you spent some time as a teenager in Ireland and uh, visiting family there, and you were initially thinking about the priesthood when you were first thinking about professionally what you might end up doing. Was there something that changed your mind or what did change your mind? 
It was interesting. My mom had a brother who was actually a Christian brother. He was the principal of a school and uh, really committed himself to that profession and that vocation in life. And so that appealed to me, that idea of serving and really having a vocation where you're serving other people. I think the hard part is I grew up in this really wonderful family. My parents were wonderful. I had aunts and uncles. And at the end of the day, I think the idea of not having a family is what changed my perspective. But I I never lost that sense of I wanted more than a job in life. I wanted a vocation and wanted something that was really about service. And that must have been part of what prompted you to get into healthcare. 100%. It was interesting. I was at Notre Dame and right across the street, there was the Northern Indiana Hospital for Children. It was actually wards of the state that were handicapped. And I was, uh, I think, one of the only students who ended up having a full-time paid job there. I used to take care of a set of autistic children for eight hours. It was feed them, get them ready for bed, get them to stay in bed when they went to bed, and just loved that kind of direct care and that kind of reaffirm that idea that something in healthcare is what I wanted to do in life. It makes sense. So you've held lots of different kinds of positions within healthcare at very well-known institutions like John Hopkins, University of Chicago, and Northwestern. And now, of course, you're running the state's largest healthcare system with well over 30,000 employees. Clearly, you've been an effective leader in order to have those types of opportunities and and run complicated business with tens of thousands of employees. What are some key leadership principles that you employ as a leader? There's probably a set of them, no different than you. You're a great leader. I've had a chance to watch you as well. I think it starts with being genuinely who you are. And for me, that means being honest, being curious, ask questions more than you talk, actually In our world, I always say we're a collection of professions. So we have doctors, nurses, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, occupational therapists, lots of people who are really, really well-trained. And so having a respect for those professions, but understanding how to create teams because none of them can do anything on their own. I was interesting. You referenced uh, my work with the American Hospital Association. I'm a huge believer in transparency. So getting data, putting that out in front of groups and using that as a tool for the place to get better. I also think honesty is a huge component. And sometimes that's hard because you have to be really honest with people when they're doing well, but also when they're not doing well. And maybe the the corollary to that, uh, and we hold this as a value at IU Health, and I'd like to say I imprinted it a little bit, is compassion. So you can be really honest with somebody and doing that in a dispassionate kind of hard way, or you can do that in a compassionate way to say, how are we going to get better and how am I going to help you? But this is something we got to deal with, I think is really important as a leader. I know you've done a great job of attracting wonderful teammates around you because I know a lot of them and you brought some great people on board and obviously they must have a passion for working with people and healthcare as well, but you've got a wonderful team. I think there's a real common thread for all of us, this notion of purpose that they could all be doing something different in a different industry, but the idea that 
we talk about all the time. Every day there's a miracle that happens probably every 10 minutes somewhere in IU Health. And to be a part of that, particularly when people are at their most vulnerable. We spend every day in the hospital, so it becomes pretty routinized to us. Most people only spend two or three times in their lifetime in a hospital. And so it's intimidating, it's scary. And so you're trying to make sure it can actually be a place where all that good work happens. You were in a key position when the pandemic struck and something I'm sure you never imagined could take place. We certainly hoped it it wouldn't. But I know you were absolutely a key leader here in central Indiana in the state. I know it through my service on the Indy Chamber Board and yours. And we all look to you during that time to understand better what was happening and how we protect our colleagues and how we protect ourselves. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and what prepared you to lead during one of the most difficult times in our country's history? Preparing for this, uh, somebody reminded me that in October of 2018, I gave a talk at the Economic Club, and that happened to be the 100-year anniversary of the worst month in the Spanish flu pandemic. And I said, be prepared. This could happen again. And what it meant to have a place like IU Health, at that time, it was Methodist. And Methodist was actually key to Indianapolis actually doing better in the Spanish flu than most other big urban areas. So some of that was in these crises, it's following the best known science. And I've learned through my career, science is not a point in time. It evolves all the time. I started my career early in the HIV crisis. And some of those early treatments for HIV never ended up being the treatment you see today, but they were the best known treatments at that time. So knowing that it was going to change and evolve, I think was one of those things. And you're trying to do the best you can at that moment. The other is you talked about our leadership team. I really believe that's part of what allowed us to succeed during COVID was there's a formal structure in healthcare systems around crisis response. That's kind of standardized that if you had the uh, stage collapse at the fairgrounds, you assign roles and everybody kind of knows what they're supposed to do. Quickly getting into that same kind of incident response mode during COVID, I don't think I ever ran incident response for three years. Uh, Usually you run it for a week, maybe a month, but really being flexible. And then maybe for me, most importantly, normally you'd say, well, the CEO should run that. I actually appointed my COO to run that because I thought my highest and best use could be in formal lane called the liaison function, which is really externally facing with government officials, business partners, all those other things. And so knowing where you can contribute the most to a team and not being afraid to say, I don't always have to lead. I can be in a different seat and still really be the best we can be as a team. So I think that's part. And then I think communication, if I thought about what did we do really well, both internally and externally, we tried to be a trusted source to the community. And then internally, I don't know that I ever did more video clips to our team, more podcasts, other things, just every day, even if we didn't know what was going on, just being clear on here's where we're going, here's what we know. That level of communication, I think, was critically important. Is there one or two learning experiences that you take away from that in terms of uh, 
how you lead in the future? Is there anything that stands out? I think there's a lot. You know, one that I think is really important is good as you think people are in a crisis, they'll be better. And if you give them general direction, they'll do something even better than you could have imagined. We had lots of people who were never in the roles we asked them to be in. They figured it out quickly because they're talented and they did a way better job than we would have ever expected. The other is really partners. Whether it was, you know, I give a, a ton of credit to the governor, Dr. Box, Dr. Weaver, the team at Lilly, the team at Roche. There were a set of assets here in Indianapolis that allowed us to do some things that I don't think you could do in other cities and not being afraid to call up and say, hey, I need some help or being familiar enough and close with them that they could call you up and say, what are you thinking? Could you help me work through this? Um, that's what's unique about Indianapolis and Indiana. I, I really love that part of working here. I'm not sure that would have happened when I was in Chicago might have happened when I was in Baltimore, but this is a unique place where people work together really well. Thank you for your leadership because it was uh, evident during the a difficult and a crisis period for our city and state. You were, you were a leader that we all look to, so we appreciate that. As I mentioned in the intro, you've got a huge building project, $4 billion project that uh, is really transformational, certainly for that part of downtown and uh, certainly will be for, I know, for healthcare in the future in our city. Can you talk a little bit about that and tell us how that project is going? Yeah, it's really probably overdue. So there are components of Methodist Hospital that we still take care of patients in that were built. Our CEO there uh, reminds me by engineers that were trained in the Civil War. <laughs> so it's wow. a, a Civil War design. So I think part of what we're trying to do is really match the environment that people take care of patients in with the talent level. We have amazing physicians, nurses, other healthcare professionals, and they're not working in contemporary facilities. Mm -hmm. And the other part is healthcare is still a competitive business, and that facility uh, within IU Health is really looking at peers like the Cleveland Clinic, University of Chicago, Northwestern, Barnes Jewish in St. Louis, Vanderbilt. Those are our competitors for what happens for a big part of downtown. And all of those other competitors have contemporary facilities. So that's one component of it. The other is uh, most people don't realize we will be 900,000 square feet smaller in the new facility than what we have at Methodist and University Hospital today. So Part of this is trying to be cost-effective. So just in light and heat, it'll be $50 million a year we will save just because it's a smaller physical plant. And it's designed for contemporary care, and you can really kind of do what you need to do in the 21st century there. We are gratefully on time and on budget. The weather has been really cooperative, so that has kept us moving. If you drive down Capitol I think we're on the fifth floor of the hospital. Uh, we've got nine more to go, so it will be a really tall building. You'll also see a hole in the ground for what will be a large parking deck and a loading dock. And then a little further down Capitol, you'll see where our central utility plant is. So it's not even one project. It's a series of projects that are all connected together. And I think I've heard you describe the 
long-term future of that whole corridor could be transformed. Is there anything you can share on the kind of the healthcare corridor that uh, you all envision? So we have tended not to think of it as one project, but kind of two and have two separate teams, one working on this hospital campus. And then the other is really a group of people working with other anchors in that area of the city. So WFYI, Citizens Energy, the medical school, the Children's Museum, and then neighborhood associations and leaders in the neighborhood to say, how would we take that geography and actually make that one of the healthiest in the country? So we have a really explicit mission statement to say we want Indiana to be one of the healthiest states. We're trying to prove that out in a very defined geography. And so that means how will we partner with others to think about a grocery store? There's no significant food access there. How do you think about daycare? How do you think about parks? It's actually interesting. We've worked with some urban planners. That section of the city is the least green. So it has more concrete and asphalt than any other section of the city. So really wanting to say, we have an internal saying, if all we do is build a great hospital, we will have failed because we really believe this should be a catalyst to improve that neighborhood with the neighborhood and actually see them get healthier. That's exciting. I just spent some time in, in Charlotte, and I was impressed that they have been very thoughtful with green spaces, and it makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, and we've got some good examples nationally that we're trying to model, although this may be the most ambitious. So when we look at kind of total acres we're trying to impact, it's at least the biggest one we can find as an analog. So it's exciting. I like those big challenges, so it's good. Let's take a quick break. This is Off the Record Podcast. Caught up on the state's top business news every business day with the Inside Indiana Business Radio On Demand podcast. Available now at InsideIndianaBusiness.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Off the Record Podcast. I'm Nate Feltman, CEO of IBJ Media, and I'm talking with Dennis Murphy, President and CEO of IU Health. You mentioned uh, public health, and I thought I'd talk a little bit about Indiana on that front. And as you know better than most, chronic diseases, uh, some of which are preventable, according to at least one study, costs Hoosiers $75 billion a year in direct and indirect costs. And Hoosier life expectancy is trailing the national average now by a couple of years. Thankfully, the legislature and the governor have begun to make this a higher priority, and, and there has been some substantial increase in funding just this last legislative session. I know going into next year, that'll be the case. What role does IU Health play in improving the health of Hoosiers? I think we've known that those statistics, and I, I think there are always multifactorial, complicated problems to address. Part of it is what's your public health infrastructure. So I'm really grateful for what the state did, but I'd say you got to do more still. So even after last year's funding, we won't be remotely near the national average. So I always say it's hard to ask for top decile performance with bottom decile funding. So I do think you've got to invest in public health. I do give the state legislature and the governor a lot of credit for saying, how do we actually deploy that? That may be different than traditional ways, because I think there are a lot of us in the healthcare sector who have been filling in that public health gap with 
community health workers for maternal and infant mortality? How do you do blood pressure screenings, other things? So we're excited to partner on the deployment end of this because I'm not sure it all goes to traditional public health infrastructure the way that you might have done 20 or 30 or even 40 years ago. I think we've learned through the pandemic, there are lots of different tools that you can use to actually impact people's health care. And then I think you've got to do some of the other things on those truly preventable ones. So I'm going to use this venue as a way to make another plea that we know changing the cigarette tax actually changes smoking. And it's one of the biggest, most preventable things on that list that contribute to all those costs in healthcare. I've actually said those of us in healthcare don't even want the proceeds. We actually just want to see it implemented so that it could actually go to deterring people from smoking. And I think there are others that we'll have to work through. I, I think you have to figure out kind of that balance between what would you like to do and what is accepted within the environment of the state. I, I think we have a culture here in Indiana and you got to kind of design programs that fit the culture. So staying on the on the public health uh, side for a second, IU Health Foundation, which I know is a separate organization from IU Health, just released recently a goal of $200 million fundraising effort. And their, their mission, I know, is similar to make Indiana one of the healthiest states in the country. I believe you serve on that board as well. Can you talk about the foundation's role and its efforts to improve Hoosier Health? The foundation is really a supporting vehicle for all of IU Health throughout the state. And so we really look to the foundation to help us build those programs that you don't get compensated for in the normal course of care of patients. So I always think the easiest one to think about is art therapy. It's actually been shown to have a huge impact on patients and their well-being, but we don't get paid to do that. And so we're really lucky that we have a whole set of donors that are willing to support programs like that. And we're seeing more and more that there are programs related to health equity and how we're getting out into communities. This whole health district program that I've talked about in individual communities, how we actually begin to impact some of these more deeply embedded public health issues. That's really where I think the foundation is going to make a huge difference for us. Switching now to the cost of health. Cost of health care has always been an issue and seems like it is for as long as I can remember, and access. Uh, these are big topics. And it's been noted by some that the health care cost in Indiana is higher than many states. And some people in economic development, which I have spent some time in, talk about that as being a potential issue to attract and retain jobs. And I know you've announced plans, IU Health has, to continue to fight and try to reduce the rising cost of health care. Can you talk a little bit about that effort from IU Health's perspective and why it may be the case that costs are higher in Indiana versus other states? I think importantly, when you start out, it's a definitional issue. So I think the folks who have said Indiana is a high-cost state, they really are referring to hospital prices. And those same folks kind of in the very fine print say, oh, by the way, Indiana has some of the lowest prices for physicians. And they also don't ever reference the cost of drugs, the cost of medical devices, the cost of everything else. Hospitals make up about 30% of all of the healthcare costs. And so, you know, we at IU Health believe we have to lead in the state. So 
That's part of why we've taken the actions we have to get our prices to the national average. But I know if we do that, and even if every other health system in the state did, we would not get to the national averages for cost of health care because you actually have to get everybody in the system to participate in that. So whether that's insurers, pharmacy benefit managers, drug manufacturers, I mean, it's kind of interesting. We have Eli Lilly in our backyard. The U.S. pays two and a half times more than the average of all the other industrialized nations for pharmaceuticals. So people talk about that research engine that pharmaceutical companies are. That's born exclusively by people in the U.S., 100%. And at some point, that's got to get rectified that we can't, as a society, bear that if we're going to be internationally competitive. The other thing that I think is really interesting is when you look at the cost of insurance. So if you go buy an individual plan or a family plan, Indiana actually ranks 27th in the country. So part of the other variable people don't talk a lot about is utilization. Like any kind of consumable, there's a price and it's how much you buy that actually end up yielding that total cost. So I do think we've got to have a broader definition question on what cost are we talking about? Because I actually don't see Indiana as having a unique cost issue. I think this is a U.S. issue. This is every place I've worked says there's a problem with healthcare costs, and we do have to manage all of that. Does Indiana's public health go into that as well? I mean, 100%. is that, is that uh, I don't know how they, these studies measure, but you, you're talking about utilization. I'm assuming we're a higher utilization state as well because of not being in great public health comparatively. Yes. So that's a factor. We actually have an older than average population. So people go and look at Colorado and say, boy, it costs a lot less out there. They're a lot younger than we are. They have much higher rates of exercise in that state when they measure people getting out. So I always try and tell people the problem is really multifactorial, and you're going to have to address all of them. So the idea of saying, if we just got hospital prices under control, we would fix this, is not going to be enough. That being said, we feel like we've got to take the first step and lead because we think this is a really important issue. And you talked about pricing and access being linked together. I really believe if you can't afford healthcare, you can't get it. And so we have a moral obligation to make sure people can get access to healthcare. So as I mentioned in the intro, you've lived and worked in, in different cities and states, uh, Chicago, Baltimore, and now Indy. And I, I always ask our Indiana 250 leaders, why do you love Indiana? Uh, what do you think is distinctive or different about Indiana? Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how you think Indiana stacks up to other places you've been and lived? I would say my wife and my family were Hoosiers, and we don't plan on moving or changing. We love it here. One example I always give people is I was a new COO here. My family was up in Chicago the first year I was here while my oldest son was finishing high school. In the first three months, the leaders of the other three major health systems here in Indianapolis called me up and took me out to dinner. I was in Chicago for 17 years. That never happened. (laughs) So it is just one really stark example that, and almost to a person, they said, there are going to be things we compete on, but there are going to be things we have to collaborate on. And so there's this 
genuine, innate component of working here that people want to collaborate and partner and really have a, a real sense of, we want to make this a better place to live, to be, to raise families, to go to school, wherever you are kind of in that life spectrum. And so it's part of why we've truly loved being here, embraced it. It's been a wonderful community. And I feel that same thing. I'm lucky at, you know, as my role in at IU Health, I get to travel around the state quite a bit and go all the way up to Fort Wayne and down to French Lick. And that's pretty genuine everywhere you go, that same sentiment that everybody's trying to work towards a common good. Is there something, if you had a magic wand that you would change about Indiana? Take the candle out from under the basket. Don't be afraid to talk about yourself, to brag. I've tried to be more active in my own industry nationally because I think there's so much good going on here. And I'm not sure we say that enough, that we're proud enough about it. As IU Health, we recruit from all 50 states. We recruit outside the country and people come. I mean, we've recruited out of Johns Hopkins, Duke, Vanderbilt, Northwestern, UCLA. We've got people coming from all over the world to be here because they know it's a great place. Don't be afraid to say that. That's a good one. I agree and with you 100%. Don't apologize. Right. Yeah, you go to Texas and they are excited <laughs> to tell you how great they are. <laughs> well, Dennis, we've made it to off the record speed round where I ask you a series of, of questions and you try to give me quick answers. So I'll, we'll get started. Your favorite movie? Forrest Gump. Favorite place to vacation? Isla Mirada down in the Keys. Favorite musical artist? Ooh, that's a tough one. I love uh, all sorts of people. I have to say Prince. What is the first thing you do in the morning? Go for a run. Title of the last book you read? Shop Class is Soulcraft. It's a really interesting book about the nature of work. And um, for us, with a series of people who are professionals, how do you not lose the soul of the profession in a world where there's electronic health records and really understand kind of that joy of a profession? What food can you not live without? Potatoes. I'm Irish. <laughs> uh, best advice you ever received? My first mentor said, uh, there's only two things that you will always carry with you. That's your reputation and whether people trust you. So always value those things. Advice for a young person who wants to become a leader? Be really good at the job you're doing right now. Don't worry about the next job, the next thing. Just pour yourself into what you're doing right now. Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Oh, that's not even a question. You're Come a Chicago on. guy, so I think I know the answer to that. <laughs> Michael Jordan, maybe even Michael Jordan's son. <laughs> so who do you cheer for when the Bears play the Colts? I allow myself to have an NFC team and an AFC team. <laughs> Every other Sunday, but I am still a Bears fan, so it is tough to lose that. I've I've had uh, almost 60 years of watching very bad football except for one season. Yeah, well, I remember that. Was that 1986? Because I grew up a Bears fan in South Bend before the Colts were a thing in Indiana. Uh, so I used to be a huge Bears fan, but I converted. Dennis, thank you so much for joining me on the Indiana 250 podcast, and thank you for all you're doing for Central Indiana and our entire state. Likewise, Nate, really appreciate the opportunity, and I do believe the IBJ is doing really great things to help the state as well. Thanks to Dennis Murphy, President and CEO of IU Health, for our conversation today. 
To learn more about other leaders on IBJ Media's Indiana 250 list, go to indiana250.com and look for a page two feature each week in IBJ. We'll be back with a new Indiana 250 off-the-record conversation soon. Mm-hmm.